The Bible is a unique piece of work because it claims to be inspired. Other religious writings are manifold, and lots of them, but they don't claim to be inspired like the Bible does. So we have to sit as Christians and we have to look at that and say, is this something we can hang our hat on? And I hope that what we have to say tonight will help. There are different kinds of reservations, three inspirations, three main kinds. The first one is called universal inspiration. That's the idea that certain men were geniuses and inspired in the sense that they're exceptionally talented, men like Michelangelo, Beethoven, or Shakespeare. That what they wrote was inspired because they were geniuses. That's not the inspired Word of God because the inspired Word of God is God-breathed. Michelangelo wasn't a fabulous artist. If you've ever been to see the Sistine Chapel, you would know that. That is one amazing piece of artwork. But it doesn't mean he was inspired like the writers of the Bible were. He was just a genius. Then there are some that hold on what's called partial inspiration. That holds that the Bible is inspired in great ideals and principles, but men determine what is good or not. Now, just as a little aside there, be sure that as you're doing your Bible study, that you are studying from a translation, not a paraphrase. There's a big difference. A translation goes from the original text. A paraphrase is what somebody thinks the original text said. And that can be dangerous. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ever read paraphrases. I think some of them are great to read to give you a better idea of what somebody might think about it. But don't study and base your salvation on a paraphrase. Do it on a translation. Okay, because paraphrases are partial interpretation by men. And that's not the type of inspiration that we want to talk about this evening. The last type of inspiration is called full inspiration. Men wrote exactly what God wanted them to write, without errors, yet within their own personalities. If you study the different books of the Bible, you can tell who wrote this book by the style of his writing, by his literary style. But it wasn't his ideas, it was God's ideas. God just allowed it to be in his style. Every teacher has a different style of teaching. I teach different than somebody else would. And I appreciate Sam filling in for me last week. I know he did a good job. I didn't anticipate my time in Bible study being a, a summer series in the fall. But that's about what it's turned into, and I apologize for that. But we need to understand that we have to believe that the Bible is inspired. It is exactly what God wanted. But he allowed their personalities to come through, their standard of writing, their form of way of doing things. Paul wrote a lot of letters. Matthew didn't write many letters. But Paul did, because that was the way he wrote. But it was inspired directly from God. Sometimes this is called verbal inspiration. I believe that the Bible was verbally inspired. I believe the men who wrote the Bible wrote as they were moved by God. Not by their opinion, 
but as they were moved by God. That's a big deal. And we as Christians need to understand that's a huge deal. I would never have dreamed 50 years ago that we would have seminaries in the United States today that are teaching that the Bible is not inspired. But we do. I mean, well-known seminaries, training preachers that are saying that the Bible's not really inspired, it's just suggestions. That's incorrect. That is incorrect. Just two or three verses here I want us to look at real quickly. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. No prophecy of Scripture is of private inspiration, for no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spake from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible makes a claim that what's in there is in there because that's what God wanted in there. It's there for a specific reason, not a person's reason, but God's reason. And that's very, very important for us to understand that. It's there because that's what God wanted. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13 says, But we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God. We'll talk about some of these things in particular a little bit more as we go into the lesson, but I do want us to get a, a few verses. Hebrews 11, verse 1, But in these last days he, spoke, he has spoken to us by his Son. And then the one that's probably the most common to us is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's what the English standard says. I think that's a good way of saying it. Inspired, breathed out by God. It's proper for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, uh, should be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now that doesn't mean that all scripture is fun to read. If it is, you've got a different terminology of fun than I do because I tell you what, Leviticus and Deuteronomy are just not much fun for me to read. I think they are destroyers of, of uh, yearly Bible reading programs. People read Genesis and it's got all those great stories and we say, oh yes, yeah, boy, that's great, that's great. And then it gets to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And they go, oh no. And we get sidetracked. We don't ever get back on, on track like we need to be. It's not fun to read all the time. But it's there because that's what God wanted to be there. It was there for a purpose. And it's there so that we can be complete. Complete. Not perfect, but complete. Everything we need is right here. Everything we need is right here. I don't know how many of y'all read owner's manuals and equipment that you buy. But if you want to know how that thing works, read the owner's manual. If you want to know how to get the best out of it, you read the owner's manual. It'll explain everything to you. That's what the Bible is. It's an owner's manual because it's inspired. And it's there for our good. Not as a punishment, but it's there for our good. Again, inspiration was not a dictation. God didn't 
whisper in Paul's ear. And then Paul wrote down what he heard. Isn't that the way that inspiration works? It worked because God breathed it to him. God gave him the guidance to write it. But it wasn't a dictation. So we don't need to get caught up with that. It's God breathed. It's that important. There's six areas of supporting evidence that I want us to look at for just a few minutes this evening about uh, the claim of inspiration. The scriptures claim to be inspired. Quran doesn't say that. Other books of religion don't say that. The Bible does. So the Bible is either inspired, like it's claimed, or it's a lie. We don't have a choice. There's, nothing, there's no in-between ground. It's either inspired, like God said, or it's a lie. I believe it's inspired, like God said. The writers were often unlearned and ignorant men who wrote with supreme confidence. If you look at the makeup of the guys who wrote the Bible, who wrote the books of the Bible, you don't find many PhDs in there. It's just not. Most of them just common old guys, weren't they? Fishermen, tax collectors, you know, just regular old guys. But they wrote with supreme confidence. And the reason they could write with confidence is because they knew what they wrote was being given to them by God. They didn't have to guess about it. The writers had little formal education, yet they spoke great truths. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about the influence of the Bible. Did you know the Bible is the number one selling book in the world every year? Did you know that? More copies of the Bible were sold than any other book anywhere in the world. More copies of the Bible are sold every year. I don't have any copies I have. I've got probably eight, ten different copies of the Bible. I don't read out of every one of them every day, but I look at most of them during the course of a week. But we need to understand that everywhere that the Bible has gone, civilization has been lifted to a higher plane. Everywhere it's been put into effect, when people have followed the guidelines of the Bible, civilization has gotten better. It has been the strongest influence for good in the history of mankind. Without the Bible's uh, beneficent influence, our world would be a worse place in which to live. Wouldn't it be horrible to live in a world that didn't have any guidance? That's what some of our evolutionary friends want us to believe. Everybody does their own thing. Nobody tells you what to do. Nobody tells you what's right or wrong. You just do your own thing. What a messed up world that would be. The Bible teaches good. It helps us as Christians to have the right guidelines to live by. Now, I think we need to look at this real quickly and understand how important it is to talk about the brevity of the Bible. The brevity of the Bible. The first 2,500 years of man's history are found in only 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. Only 50 chapters. It covers 2,500 years of man's history. 
if you got a Reader's Digest, you subscribe to Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest has more words in it every month than the book of Genesis has. <laughs> more than the book of Genesis. Matthew has only 28 chapters. Mark 16, Luke 24, John 21. There's a great deal of brevity in the Bible. As a history major, I had to read a lot of biographies and autobiographies. Just what I had to do. And boy, was it boring sometimes. And sometimes it was just, it was just a cross. It was just no good. You know, everybody wants to make a big deal about George Washington saying he, he cannot lie, he cut down the cherry tree. No, he didn't. His biographer put it in there. George never did that, never said he did it. But the biographer thought that'd be a cool story to have in there. So he put it in there. The writers in the Bible did not put things in there just to fill space. They were put in there because they were important, because that's what God wanted in there. So the brevity is very, very important. I am totally amazed at the brevity of, of Bible incidents. Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 24 tells the story of man's fall. The baptism of Jesus is covered in five verses. <laughs> five, just five verses. Is that what we would do if we wrote it? Would we, would we, would we cover the baptism of Jesus as only five verses? I don't think so. The transfiguration of Jesus, 17 verses in Matthew. The persecutions and conversion of Saul cover four verses. If man were writing about what Saul was doing to the church, do you think he would write it so briefly? Oh, I believe he would call Saul a dirty dog. Look what this mean person has done. Look what this guy is doing. He's trying to destroy Christianity. Four verses. Only four verses. The death of the Apostle James is in one verse. The first Christian martyr. One verse. You think that's what man would have done if we had been writing that book? You think we would have done it in one verse? I don't think so. I think we would have been a lot more verbose than the apostles were. Now, let's talk about omissions from the scripture. John's gospel does not talk about the birth of John the Baptist. It doesn't talk about Jesus' birth. It doesn't talk about a genealogy. It doesn't talk about Jesus' youth. It doesn't talk about his temptation or his essential. His ascension. It doesn't talk about any of those things. Things that we would consider very, very important items. Now, some of the other writers spent some time. I mean, Matthew spent a whole chapter about a genealogy, didn't he? Talking about who begat, all those begats, you know. But John didn't. John didn't. The Apostle John told of only 20 different days of Jesus' life that covered 12,000 days. He only talked about 20 days. That's why in John chapter 20, what would what did the Apostle John say? Many other signs and wonders were done 
that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. God never intended to cover everything. He did never intend to cover everything in detail. He covered it as he needed to. I used to talk to some of my friends. Well, I can't wait till I get to heaven so I can ask God about so-and-so. Ask God about this. Ask God about that. I don't know. I think if I get to heaven, I'll probably already know it. I think I'll be aware. I don't think I'll have to ask him. I don't think I'll have to. But the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about genealogies. It doesn't spend a lot of time talking about specific things. It talks about what's necessary. I think it's interesting that there's no physical description of Jesus in the Bible. What is the only thing we know about the physical description of Jesus? He wasn't good looking. <laughs> That's all we know is he wasn't comely. You know, he wasn't comely. He wasn't like some of those guys like Saul, who was, you know, head and shoulders above everybody, a great good looking guy. They can give us any description of Jesus. If there had been one person that you and I would have written about and described in detail, it would have been Jesus, wouldn't it? God didn't think that was important because the description of Jesus wasn't important. The life of Jesus was, and we've got that. The description of Jesus is not what's important. I don't think Jesus was blonde-headed and blue-eyed, by the way. He was a Jew, and I have never known many Jews that were blonde-headed and blue-eyed. So I, I don't think he fell in that category. Uh, we kept an, a, a Korean exchange student for a couple years when we were over in Atlanta. He loved all the little blonde girls. Oh, Papa, she is beautiful. She is beautiful. And after I went to Korea, I understood why he thought they were beautiful. Because you don't see blonde-headed people in Korea. They're all dark-headed. You know, they just are. Nothing is bad or good. It's just they, they aren't blonde-headed. But the physical description of Jesus is not important. What Jesus did with his life, what he, how he gave his life, how he was resurrected, those are what's important, and those are covered. Now, I think it's also important that we talk about the impartiality of the Scriptures. Impartiality of the Scriptures. I think it is truly an evidence of the inspiration of God that God told about the drawbacks of mankind. He didn't paint them in a glorious, that can't do anything wrong picture. Abraham and Sarah. They weren't perfect. And God told us about it, didn't he? It's recorded. David. Definitely not perfect, was he? Conspired. Committed adultery. Had Uriah killed. And yet God mentioned those things. If me and you had been writing that, I don't think we would have put it in there. I think we would have left that out. Because those are pretty big Bible people. Pretty big Bible people. I think we're probably likely to leave that out. We would have surely told about the mother of James and John wanting, their, wanting her children to sit on the, on the sides right beside God. You know, we wouldn't have put that in there. 
I know we wouldn't have. We wouldn't have said anything about Peter's denial, about him denying Christ three times. We wouldn't have put that in there. We wouldn't have put anything in there about the betrayal of Jesus. We just wouldn't have done that because that showed the negative side of mankind. A regular person who would have written that would not have put those negative things in there. Just wouldn't have done it. Only would have talked about the good things. But yet, the Bible, the scriptures are impartial. Also, it's calm. There's a great calmness in the Bible. You notice that there's no uh, use of a thesaurus in the Bible. We don't see a bunch of descriptive adjectives. The famous, the glorious, the desperadoed. You know, we don't see those, de- those kind of words. They're just very calm. He just said, this is the way it was. This is the way we deal with it. It's a great thing. We as people would have spent a lot more time talking about the crucifixion of Christ than the gospel writers did. Because we would have been emotionally attached. And we would have written things in there. We would have described the agony that Jesus went through. Although that's mentioned that he was in pain. But we would have been much more detailed about that. The Bible doesn't have to do that. The Bible talks about Pentecost. It gives a sermon and says 3,000 people were baptized. Wouldn't you have said more? (laughs) Wouldn't you have said more if you'd been writing it? You would have said, man, you wouldn't believe it. There were people all over the place getting dunked everywhere. Everybody was baptizing each other, and they were singing, and they were praising. The Bible is very calm about it, very matter-of-factly. Now, let's talk about unity, prophecies, and scientific knowledge in the Bible. Real quickly, we've got, we've got about five minutes. I think we can do it. 66 books in the Bible, 40 different men, written over a period of uh, 1,600 years. The writers used different languages. Now, most of them were Greek and Hebrew, but there was some Aramaic. And yet, there were never any problems with unity in the Bible. I tried to find my book, uh, Alleged Discrepancy of the Bible. I had it at one time. I have no idea where it is. Uh, My wife decided to clean up a few months ago, and I don't know where we put it. But it's probably somewhere at the house. I just don't know where. But if you get a chance, you can get that book out, and you can read it. And it will spend a great deal of detail explaining to you what some people think are discrepancies that are just misunderstandings and interpretations. They're not discrepancies. The Bible is unified. It didn't change. God's never had a plan B. Did you know that? God's never had a plan B. He's always just had plan A. I'm going to send my son. Take away the sins of the world. And people can respond to him. That's his plan A. No no plan B. Not a, well, if they don't do it, I'll do this. No, no, no. Everything is together. Perfect unity among the writers. 
Now let's talk about prophecy. There's two types of prophecy with the word prophecy. There's foretelling and foretelling. Two entirely different concepts. Foretelling means proclaiming or preaching God's word. So I am a prophet this evening. And I am proclaiming God's word. That's what that term of prophecy means. Okay? Now there's another one that's called foretelling, which an event in the future is predicted. Two different kinds. There's lots of prophets in the Bible who never did any, any foretelling. And there's some that did a lot. I got a list there, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Zechariah, Malachi. All of those spent times talking about what was going to happen in the future. And it did. They also just preached. So, a good friend of mine got real upset because he read somebody was teaching somewhere and they called him a prophet. Okay. If you understand a prophet is just somebody who teaches God's word, I'm okay with that. Now, if he was somebody who was trying to foretell the future, I have a problem with that. Because that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Not today. There are over 300 messianic prophecies. What does messianic mean? Prophecies about Jesus, about the Messiah. Messianic prophecies are fulfilled by Jesus. And most of them are very specific. Now, I have a, a section in my Bible that has several pages. And you probably got them if you have a study Bible too. Several pages where it talks about the prophecy what it was, and where it was fulfilled. Okay? One, two, three, four, five, six pages. Six pages of prophecies about Jesus that were listed as messianic prophecies. And most of them were very, very specific tribe he would come from, where he would be born, how many pieces of silver would it take when he was, be, when he was betrayed. I mean, very, very specific. There's no doubt. I don't see how anybody who can study those prophecies can question the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. There's some folks that do. But I think if you made an intellectually honest study of those prophecies, you would know that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay? Now, <clears throat> of all those questions of prophecies, what's the chance of those things accidentally happening? One chance out of a thousand trillion. That's for one. That's for one of those prophecies it's to come true. One chance out of a thousand trillion. read one time of a, uh, an example of that would be if you covered the entire earth with ball bearings a foot deep and you painted one of those ball bearings black and put a blindfold on somebody and told him to pick out the black ball bearing that's the chances of some of these things coming true I mentioned before and I mention again 
It takes a lot more faith to be an atheist than it takes faith to be a Christian. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you do in our lives. We thank you for the fact that you loved us enough to give us your word. We pray, Lord, that each one of us will become better students of your word, that we will spend time in it, that we will hide it in our hearts, we will apply it in our lives. Bless us as we enter the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.